Hello, and welcome to The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm your host, Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and with us today we have Steve James, director of the gripping documentary series, City So Real. Well, welcome, Steve. I'm so honored to be speaking to you today, and I'm not just saying this, but I am a huge fan of your work and have been for many years. So congratulations on City So Real. It is a staggering achievement, and again, we're so honored to have you here. Before we talk about the series... I'd love to talk a little bit about your relationship with Chicago. And I know you were born in Virginia. When did the city become part of your life and how has it informed your vision as a filmmaker over the years? Wow. Well, I, uh, I moved to Chicago from Southern Illinois when I, after grad school. So I moved here in 1985. So what is that? That's 35 mm-hmm. years ago. Mm-hmm. My wife will tell you that it was going to be a temporary stop. I don't remember that, but, uh, <laughs> but it hasn't been, uh, and it's become my adopted hometown, uh, you know, and, it, and it's informed all my work. I mean, I moved here, when I moved here, I thought I had this idea for Hoop Dreams, and I knew that Chicago would be a great place to try and pursue that, that crazy idea. Um, and so that was my first real work, you know, as a professional. Uh, and it's been all downhill ever since. You know, it's... <laughs> no, that's absolutely not true. Anyone who knows your work knows you're just being very modest. And speaking of Hoop Dreams, which obviously was sort of your seminal um, you know, breakout piece. So that's interesting to hear. You wanted to do Hoop Dreams, but you hadn't necessarily decided the city in which to sort of execute the film. And, and Chicago lent itself to that story? Yeah, I mean, we... My wife and I were trying to decide where to move, where we would move after grad school, and she did not want to live in L.A. She did not want to live in New York. Mm-hmm. So those were off the table. And so I thought, well, Chicago would be a good place. And, and in the back of my mind, I was like, and that would be a good place to pursue this idea for Hoop Dreams because I knew that basketball culture in Chicago was rich and yes. vital <laughs> and that this and, and that, that was at the when the Bulls were just coming into their own with Michael Jordan. So right. Yeah, there wasn't a better time and place to tell that story for sure. Absolutely. And and I'm curious, what did you learn making Hoop Dreams that stuck with you that made you want to revisit Chicago as its own subject? Well, I keep coming back to Chicago uh, in so many ways um, over the years. And I think it's in part because it's such a it is such a vital place. It is it is at times quite infuriating. Um, you know, Chicago is sort of recognized and recognized is probably the wrong words, more like damned mm-hmm. as being the most segregated large city in America. And I think it probably is true. Uh, at the same time, there's this incredible spirit uh, to the people. There's incredible pride uh, on the part of Chicagoans uh, and passion. And and I keep getting drawn to that and, and attracted to that on Hoop Dreams. You know, it was centered initially, of course, around these kids who wanted to use basketball as a way out and and to successful lives. And um, and so that passion was immediately evident, you know, on on their part. And and it, and it, it certainly hasn't waned in the years that I've been here. Hmm. I think a lot about New York City because that's my only point of reference for having lived in a very large city, which I did about 20 years ago. Why does Chicago continue to have the problems that it does as compared to New York City? And obviously right. both cities have their challenges, but what is it endemically about Chicago and its history of politics that has given it such kind of a terrible reputation? And it is a sad thing that that is our go-to sensibility about Chicago. Why is that? Well, you know, I, I mean, Chicago has a, mul- uh, a multiple reputations, right? I, I just heard a thing yesterday uh, 
on the news here, of course, they would put it out here that said that, you know, some survey just done said that Chicago was America's favorite large city, you know, and maybe that's for tourists. I don't know. You know, they come mm-hmm. here and there's, and it's certainly a great place to visit. And it's a great place to live. But I, I think that Chicago has kind of become the poster child for urban violence, right? right. That's, that's it. you know, we were the poster child for Michael Jordan for years. Right. And Al Capone before him. <laughs> right. And now now it's urban violence. And <laughs> um, and I think the, the, the reason for that is, is because we do have a serious problem and we are a very big city, even though New Orleans has a higher murder per capita rate, sure. for example. But- Part of the problem is the segregation in Chicago. Um, and what is, and, and, and sorry to interrupt, but what is so unique about the segregation in Chicago? And every city in America obviously is reconciling with this now. Yeah. But what is it about either the infrastructure or the housing or the school system that, that created this problem there? Well, that might be above my pay grade to really explain all that. But, you know, Chicago is segregated in the sense that the South Side, although there are pockets of, of um, different ethnic communities on the south side it has historically been black um and there's a there's a rich and storied history of black south side chicago and the north side has largely again these are all changing now but it has largely been identified as white and the west side has been known as black and and you know for a while there it was jewish and then it became black in the 60s and 70s and and that was that and so so you have a lot of, you know, Chicago is known as a city of neighborhoods, and you have a lot of neighborhoods that are very insular in terms of um, integration. And they're, 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 you know, black neighborhoods, sometimes border onto Latinx neighborhoods. Hmm. Um, and, and Chicago has a tremendous amount of um, poverty in those neighborhoods. You know, New York, you know, New York has been gentrified considerably all of right. Manhattan, just about all of Manhattan has Absolutely. been gentrified. And even Brooklyn is unaffordable now too for most people. Right. And Chicago does, Chicago is being gentrified like every other major city, but we have large swaths of the city where gentrification hasn't even begun to mm. happen. And, and, and in part, it has to do with geography. You know, the people on the south side of Chicago think of Chicago as being their Chicago being different from the people on the north side of Chicago. Hmm. Well, we see that very clearly in the series. It almost seems like they're living in completely different cities. It's yeah. really, it really is staggering. And I know you started this initially as a feature. What yeah. changed your mind that, that this deserved longer treatment? Because honestly, after having watched all five episodes, I can't imagine you squeezing all of this into a feature. <laughs> you would have had to do the Quentin Tarantino four hour, you know, kill bill treatment for this if you had tried yeah, to yeah. do that. Well, I do have a reputation for making long films, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and it's uh, I, I feel I feel like uh, the docu series moment has uh, I've met my moment um, because docu series uh, allow me and afford me an ability to be expansive in a way that even my long films mm-hmm. can't be. And and I think what happened was is that as we were out there filming, there was just so much going on, you know, and and our whole approach to to making this film which at first was, was a little uh, unsettling. Uh, I, I'm, I'm a very free-flowing filmmaker as, by nature. I, I like to follow things where they lead me. But this really put that to the test because we would start out days with one thing on our schedule and have no idea where we were going to go after that. And we hmm. would still fill up the day because we really let 
what was happening in the city or where we serendipitously or politically or whatnot guide where we went. And so we just ended up shooting, you know, over 400 hours of material and a lot of it felt pretty good. <laughs> and so you do the math. Right. <laughs> yes, that you know, does not then, lend and, itself to that. And then yeah. things happen like Ed Burke, the, the uh, 50 year alderman of Chicago got indicted Right. You know, we were out, you know, it's funny. We got to know a lot of the, um, the, uh, the regulars in the press, you know, that go to all these, Mm -hmm. you know, events and stuff. And at first they were like, what are you guys doing? You know, and then we would tell them and they, they kind of got excited about it. And at one point late in our filming, one of the guys turned to me and said, boy, did you pick the right year to do this? (laughs) (laughs) I would say so. And actually that's a perfect segue to my next question, which is, about the mayoral election, which for me serves as this this wonderful, almost Greek chorus framing device where we keep going back to this chaotic, I don't think the word chaotic even begins to describe this process for people. (laughs) But tell tell me how the mayoral election, the 2019 mayoral election, how did that help you get access to people? And do you think it offered more entry points to talking to people because people had so much more to talk about and maybe more to complain about? I think that's a Actually, that's a good question and a really good observation. I think it did. I think that, you know, one of the things that struck us about this field of candidates was not only its size, but its diversity. It, in a way, you could you could almost say that every demographic had a candidate in the that's very in this true. Hunt, mm-hmm. in this hunt. You know, just mm-hmm. about every 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 demographic. And remind me how many total candidates there were. Well, there were 21 initially, and right. four, okay. 14 made the ballot. And That's as you see, unheard as, of. Yeah, and as you <laughs> see in the in the series, it's not you know the ballot <laughs> making the ballot is 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 a whole other thing. Right. And and so so I think the diversity of the candidates lended itself to um, entry into lots of communities for us as they led us to those communities, as well as to, into conversations with people. And one of the things that really struck me was how completely engaged some people were and mm-hmm. how utterly unengaged others were. Well, I mean, we the see La- there's a great scene with the Mexican um, musicians yeah. in the restaurant and, and you ask them, you know, what do you think of the mayoral race? And they have these sheepish looks like, uh... <laughs> We don't actually know anything about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or the Laquan McDonald trial, which was right. you know one one of the spines of this story. Right. We we engage Black Chicagoans about that trial, and you know, everybody we talked to had strong opinions and had really thought about what was going on. Right. We encountered way too many white. Uh, citizens of Chicago for whom it had no impact whatsoever. Yes, I I saw looks of discomfort on a few of those folks' faces when they realized they really should know more than they did. And they started to sort of talk themselves (laughs) in a circle. But I like like that you handled it. You didn't make them feel badly about it, but I think it really spoke volumes. And also these beautiful setting. I think there, you know, one guy was walking his dog, another person's near this beautiful lake. And then it's just such a stark visual difference when you're talking to people in the black community and you see this sort of depleted buildings behind them and and how much they really are living in different worlds. It really comes across. You know, and here's the thing, even even people in more well-to-do integrated neighborhoods like Hyde Park, for example, that we talked to, Mm -hmm. um, they were engaged by the trial. It's, it, you know, this trial was for, 
for the, the people in the press, they said this was the most significant trial in Chicago's uh, history in the last in 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 this century, mm-hmm. and probably into the last century. And yet, there were large swaths of the Chicagoans who, for whom it it barely ticked on the radar. And on the note of getting people to speak, what was your approach to finding subjects? Was it uh, sort of a quote-unquote man-on-the-street approach, or as I like to say, a person on the street? Obviously, there are women, too. (laughs) Yes. And then was it a combination of that with doing research in advance, saying, okay, this is the type of voice I think we really need. We need a more conservative-leaning person. Let's see who we can find who kind of fits the profile of what we need for this section. Because I have a feeling it was probably a mix, but tell me how you did that. Yeah, there was some mix to it, but but it was really uh, a lot of it was serendipitous in terms of that aspect. So, for example, um, you know, I had no idea what we would encounter when we'd go to that park on the north side to talk about the Laquan McDonald trial. I was actually right. really surprised at the response. Um, at the same time, um, you know, doc, most documentary filmmakers will tell you that when you're out shooting, right, uh, it's not uncommon for people to try to flag you down and not only ask you what you're doing, but want to be in your film. Right. Right. And most times you're you're gracefully declining that you're saying, mm-hmm. oh, thank you. But, you know, we're not <laughs> we're not doing a film on this. We're right. Whatever. Right. right. On this film, we loved it when people did that. So mm-hmm. like the shoe shine guy. Oh, Maine, mm-hmm. he he flagged us down in the hallway one day and said, Merry Christmas and wanted to talk to us. And that led us to come back and film him doing his job. Tracy, the Uber driver. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, Lyft driver. She, you know, she was giving us a ride from one location to the next. She saw the camera and she's very, you know, um, outgoing. And she said, what are you guys doing? And so I started to tell her and she started to talk about how much she loved the candidate Amara Enya. And I just said, hey, do you mind if I come in the front seat and we'll just <laughs> talk to you? So we were constantly seizing on opportunities when they presented themselves if somebody has something they wanted to say to us, we were there to listen. And then the more calculated things tended to be like when once we had filmed in the black barbershop that you right. see in episode one, we thought, let's go to a Bridgeport barbershop, which will be white, mm-hmm. and let's see what goes on there. And, right. you know, when we went into that barbershop, I had no idea that most of those guys were ex-cops. Right. I had no idea. The way you find out in the series, in that moment, in the scene, is the way we found out when we were filming. That's so great. And then the guy who brings the donuts for everyone. And that is, <laughs> it really yeah. is just something you feel like you're watching a feature. You just can't believe these, <laughs> these people organically exist. They're so funny yeah. and they have such a rapport with each other and, and a very valuable insight that I think a lot of us haven't witnessed. So yeah. I, I really appreciated that. Now, in terms of when you're in the neighborhoods that are predominantly black neighborhoods, you are a Caucasian man and there's obviously a sensitivity with making sure your subject knows that all you want is honesty and you're supporting them. So how important was it for you to have a crew that also had people of color within it to help you establish that trust and also just show this, we are trying to be inclusive here. Yeah. Yeah. We, we had a diverse team of filmmakers, although there were, there were certainly many times because we worked so small where it was just Zach Piper and I out there filming in, in a community of color, which, you know, I have done for many, many years, but, but there's no question that it's different. And I'll give you a perfect example. It's no question that it's different when the crew is diverse, which is there was, um, the, the barbershop scene that we just talked about in the Mm -hmm. black barbershop, 
Kevin Shaw, someone who I work with a lot and um, is a you know brilliant filmmaker and cinematographer, he shot that scene. It so happened that day that also Bailey, who was one of our sound people, who's African American, was doing sound for the, and I was there, and Sylvetta Christmas, the field producer, was there, um, who's who's black. Um, I was there, but the fact that the crew was the makeup of that crew um, really, I think, gave those guys license to have the kind of conversation that they would have if I wasn't there. Mm. You know, if I'm behind the camera and filming those situations, it doesn't mean I won't get something authentic. I often, I feel like I do. But a lot of times I will get something that people feel like they want to tell me. Now, they, not necessarily telling me what I want to hear, but tell right. me something they feel I need to know. Right. And in this conversation, this was a conversation that wasn't about white people in that, in that very direct sense. It is about mm -hmm. privilege, but it wasn't about white people. And that was that was a remarkable moment. Similarly, I wasn't even at this shoot. The the there's a scene in episode two where Willie Wilson is speaking to uh, some some folks at a fundraiser, and yeah. he's talking very candidly about race. Yes, he and, is. And, and our <laughs> and our crew our crew that day was Bailey, Kevin, and Silvetta. I wasn't even there. And I think if I had actually been there, it, it might have been different. Wow. And he doesn't seem to have much of a filter as it is. So no. <laughs> talk about a character you could never dream up. He is a real yeah. character. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> and the, I, the, the division of church and state is something he doesn't know much about. Yes, as we see at the, what was <laughs> it, the, top, the top of episode three or four where he four, visits all the four. four, where he visits all the churches. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a real glimpse into, quote unquote, politics as usual, right? <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of crew members, I hear that you also worked with your son on this project. Yes. Jackson, and tell me about that. That This was, I mean, one of one of the most treasured aspects of, I mean, this was a, a lovely project in every respect, but one of the most treasured is the fact that I got to hire my son. He's worked with me before on projects, and I pay him. Even though he's my son, I do pay him. <laughs> That's good. Uh, um, but this was the first time that he's worked with me where he really had a genuinely strong creative voice in the mix um, in terms of the kinds of things we wanted to film and ideas about what we would film. So, for example, one of his brilliant ideas was The Dog Walker. Oh, that's um, great! Yeah, great. And and the dog walker is just so happens to be a, a roommate of his. And he said, you know, my roommate does, you know, dog walking for Gold Coast people. What do you think about following him one day? And it was like great. Hmm. And he had he had numerous ideas in that of that caliber. Where, and he also just has a really terrific eye. If it's a beautiful shot in the series, it's probably better chance than not that he shot it or Kevin shot it than than I shot it. <laughs> no, it was great to see also a depiction that the young man you're speaking of is white and I'm imagining maybe early 30s, you know, fairly young, late 20s. Yeah. But we also see the sort of millennial gig worker piece of the puzzle, which he he's neither poor nor rich. He's he's clearly Caucasian, but he also represents another upper, underrepresented group in Chicago, which is struggling young people. So I Absolutely. thought it was really meaningful to see him in there. And, and it was great to have Jackson for, you know, we have this episode five, right? Mm -hmm. It was great to have Jackson um, out there on that one because he shot, he, he shot the most compelling 
and interesting protest stuff that appears in that episode. That's all Jackson, and a lot of and and it was all him on his own, with oh, just wow. a camera mounted mic, and he was able to get in there and 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 capture it in a way that again, you know, would have been harder for me. So, Steve, I'd like to actually get back to the Laquan McDonald case for a moment, if we could. As we see in the series, a verdict was passed down for the officer, Jason Van Dyke, for the 2014 murder of Laquan, whom he shot 16 times. And actually, in a rare turn of events, Van Dyke was convicted of second-degree murder in 16 counts of aggravated battery with a firearm and was ultimately sentenced to six years and nine months in prison. And a lot of the community members in the film react to this in meaningful ways, one of whom is Maze Jackson, a local DJ who's very outspoken. And he said something on camera that I'd actually never thought about in terms of how the media covers these tragedies. He said, quote, black death is the new lucrative hustle, yeah. which I take to mean that so many of these cases never actually have a chance in court because they are mostly settled out of court because that is the most lucrative. Yeah. This really spoke to me as a journalist and made me wonder how can we cover the nuances of these tragedies more comprehensively? Yeah, no, that, that, that's why it's in the series. That really jumped out at me too, um, that insight. Uh, and, and it's the kind of thing that if you talk to uh, activists in the community, which I have and, and certainly Mays has, they will talk about that, that very issue of the, of, you know, in Chicago, the city council has paid a half a billion dollars over the last, 10 years in money to families that, you know, that, that, that have been mistreated. So it's, it's a major, it's a major industry in a sense too. um, And we see that a beautiful young woman who says, yes, we got money, but it doesn't bring the person back. No. And and, and you see the pain on her face as you start to realize, oh, this actually, this payout, quote unquote payout doesn't actually fix anything. Yeah. So so to get back to your question, too, you know, one of the things we noticed because we were out there on a daily basis and we were with the regular press corps folks who, you know, work very hard and have a thankless job. I can't imagine doing what they do year in and year out. It's it's hard work. But as a result, the way in which news is set up is is that events, press conferences, whatever, are often they, there's a point to them, there's a, a sound bite to them, and that's all they are. And so, what really goes on at that press conference rarely ever gets makes the evening news or the newspaper. Right. And so, so for example, the daily scene where he, where he brings in Al Gore for the endorsement and got kind of grilled by the reporters, and it's a very awkward moment. If you look so at that, mm-hmm. if you look at that news story on the air, it's you know it's nothing. It's nothing, you know, and or Tony Preckwinkle, when we followed Tony Preckwinkle to a news conference or a little thing out in the neighborhood where they were announcing support for her and she's looking down at her paper and her notes Mm -hmm. uh, to answer questions that clearly there are no answers to those questions and those notes. Those are the kind of things that the the everyday news media will not focus on, will not show. And I understand it. I get it. If they did, they could hurt their access to those folks. You know, mm-hmm. it's that classic thing that if you're if you're too critical, then you you screw yourself as a journalist. But as a result, we weren't bound by any of that. So when we when we showed up at events, we were there to capture them, not for what the candidate wanted us to take away, but we wanted to capture them as actual real 
scenes and moments in a campaign. So I'd actually love to listen to a clip from episode one that features some of your amazing person on the street interviews that you did throughout the series. This one specifically is you speaking to people about the Laquan McDonald murder case. The first set of voices we hear are those of two black residents from Chicago's South Side. And the second voices we hear belong to various white residents from the North Side. So let's take a listen. City needs to train these police officers to not shoot to kill. Because I feel like this, if the police can go after somebody, they should have their day in court. They shouldn't be judge, juries, and executioners. What if Van Dyke is found innocent? Anger, a lot of senseless protesting, and back to the norm, which is more killings in Chicago. The Laquan McDonald trial, is that something that you've been hearing about, reading about? I've heard about it a little bit, but I don't know enough to like, comment on it. I haven't really kept up on that. I haven't really followed it. Yeah, I also, I also don't know much about it. I think these clips specifically speak so powerfully to the fact that these Chicagoans not only exist in vastly different neighborhoods, but really totally different worlds. And obviously the Van Dyke verdict was a very, very, very rare moment of a police officer being convicted of murdering a young black man. It just very rarely happens. What was it like to be in the courtroom? that day well we weren't in we weren't in the courtroom no one was you know they had a pull camera in the courtroom but but we were we were with the rest of the um the media just outside the courtroom okay and it was it was an extraordinary moment for chicago It, it and and i think for for this issue of police violence i mean this was the first chicago policeman convicted of murder ever um which is kind of amazing it is um and so so that was amazing, but of course, because we're not just doing a snapshot of that trial, uh, we stuck around to see what became of the sentencing. And when the sentencing came along, he got an incredibly light sentence. I, I mean, he'll probably be out of jail next year, out of wow. prison next year. Wow! And and of course, there were a lot of people who were, I think, rightfully angry at what the judge gave him in terms of sentencing. He gave him a little more than seven years and with good behavior, he would be out in three and a half. Wow. It's <laughs> especially after what's happened this year, it's, you know, it's, it's a lot to try to absorb, but the fact yeah. that he was actually convicted is a milestone meaningful. that hopefully will set a precedent in some capacity. So there are a lot of moments in the series that are difficult to watch and I'm sure they were difficult to also witness. And one moment for me is it's a watch party for candidate Gary McCarthy, where you have a group of older white voters who seem to be upper middle class. They're sipping wine, watching a debate event that he's doing with his candidates. And this older white gentleman says of one of the younger black female candidates, she probably supports rapping. And I can see her doing a blunt on the way home. And a woman he's sitting with says, you know, you're on camera. To which he says, oh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's such a farcical sort of absurd thing to be witnessing. I can't imagine what it was like to hear it in person. <laughs> so tell me how hard it was for you to just stay silent and remind yourself, okay, this is, you know, a warts and all look at race relations in Chicago. What, what was your emotional experience during those moments? Well, uh, I, I did not shoot that. Jackson did, my son. Okay. And, and it just so happened that day that, that Zach and I were at the actual debate. We, we had I a see. kind of behind the scenes look at the debate. And for the longest time, I thought while I was filming that, like, this will be a good scene. 
You know, right. we're going to get a behind the scenes look at it. We were with the people, you know, before they went on and all that stuff. And then as the debate ended and we were wrapping up our gear, I got a text from Jackson that said it took place in Bridgeport. It said mm-hmm. Bridgeport. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, now I know why he said that, because it is definitely a wow moment. It's a wow. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, so you'd have to ask him, but I, I think he, he's very savvy in those situations, obviously. And, you know, he just let them carry on. And I think that's what you have to do. I mean, if you're, if you're there to capture what people really feel, then, you know, there are times when I challenge people. You do. In, okay. in, in conversations and, and on camera. Absolutely. There are times when I challenge people. And then there are other times where I feel like it's not really my place to challenge them. It's just to capture this. Well, and, and that, because and this that is, was a moment this is of what observation. Right. Yes. This was clearly a moment of observation. If I had engaged in a conversation, if I had done a on what we call on the fly interview with some of the people in the, in that setting, then I would have probably I might have I might have said, so what makes you think Amara would be doing a blunt on the way? You know, right. what makes you think she's into rat, you know, right. and, and press them on it. But um, but that was certainly that was a purely observational situation. And and we purposely put in the part about where he says, I'm fine with being filmed because we wanted it to be clear mm-hmm. that that was even drawn to his attention. And yeah, no, I'm, I'm happy with what I'm saying here. So you, you've said that you shot 400 hours of footage and was your original plan to end with Lori Lightfoot's victory and it'd be four episodes and sort of, you know, open it up. This is the next generation of Chicago politics. This queer black woman is now the mayor of Chicago and sort of end it there. And yet you didn't end it there. So tell me about your decision to do a fifth episode and the challenges you faced doing so during the pandemic. Sure. Yeah. So you're right. I mean, um, we figured we would follow this story through the election, uh, whoever won. And the fact that Lori Lightfoot came from way back, she was at 2.8% with a month to go. And the fact that we had worked very hard to get the access that we got to Lori, uh, that the documentary gods blessed us um, (laughs) with with her victory. Um, you You know, it seemed like, well, that's the natural place to end it. And with a kind of in the ending of episode four, which was the end of the series for a while, the idea was to kind of imagine what she faces going forward that, mm-hmm. you know, she's won, but boy, does she have her work cut out for her. But of course, in our imagining, no one imagined a pandemic or George Floyd. Right. And so when the pandemic hit, we hadn't sold the series yet because of the pandemic and it had everything had ground to a halt. And I just started thinking like, I feel like we need to do something on this because I feel like to make this series as completely relevant and it's, I think it's very relevant in every respect, but to make it as completely relevant, I feel like we have to take stock of the pandemic. So we went out initially just to do some fairly modest filming around the pandemic and then George Floyd happened. And when that happened, we just said, okay, we're all in on a full episode because it, I think it demands it. You know, it, this moment demands, this series demands that. And so, you know, the episode, it takes stock of the pandemic. And then at, when George Floyd hits, you know, essentially all hell breaks loose in Chicago. Right. And, and you know, it was, a ch- it was a challenge for us because we wanted to show Lori Lightfoot as mayor. We wanted to give her an opportunity to speak to that, which we do. But at the same time, we wanted to hear from people who, who are critical of her. 
Right. Um, and, and there are lots of progressives who are critical. So I'd love to listen to a clip from episode five. And this clip features a protester sort of shouting in a megaphone to many people crowded in the streets about Mayor Lori Lightfoot, who, of course, is the subject of much scrutiny and criticism. So let's have a listen to that. Lori, I'm not going to talk to you as the mayor. Right. I'm going to talk to you like my auntie. Auntie Lori. You are a woman of color. You have a daughter who is a girl of color. When I see you, I see myself. And I pray that when you see us, you see yourself. I recognize that in your official capacity, you are protecting property and not people. Auntie Lori, I want you to know that the people who love you most need you most to love them. Not as a mayor, but as a family member. Think of yourself as a family member. You look like us, and when they done with you on the fifth floor, you're going to be right here on 79. And what is their main criticism of her? Because it's, I, I mean, maybe I'm just a little too soft on leaders, but I, I do wonder what could anyone in her position have done differently that would have made people feel better? I don't know what she should have done differently. I think what's going on with Lori is what's going on as a part of this moment that is, I think, relatively new, which is that people in positions of authority who are people of color mm. are now being um, held to a scrutiny by people of color uh, that, that I think is unprecedented. Um, you, you've seen around the country, you've seen a number of, of police uh, commissioners right. or mayors uh, who are people of color who are leaving those positions under pressure because I think there's just, there's a strong, it's not just from people of color. It's it, there, you know, you look at these marches and you look at the protests, they are very integrated Mary. there. I think there is, there's just a, a level of frustration with way America has gone and business as usual and politics as usual, whether they be liberal or conservative. And I think she's dealing with that as well. She's also a tough, she's tough. She is, and tough. that, mm -hmm. and that's one thing that is a real virtue for her. But it, she, you know, I think she's coming to realize that she has to try to get some different tacks in order to reach people. That toughness mm -hmm. works at times, and other times, not so much. Well, and we see that toward the end where she's mixing with the community and yes. and mingling and kind of giving people hugs and yeah. safely. She had a mask on. But yeah. you kind of see her and imagine, you know, how much she's had to fight in her life. And I think once we Absolutely. see the armor going away a little bit and we see that she is hurting, too, I think then you see a connection between her and her constituents a little bit more where she's kind of, you know, stopped the battling for a moment. And it Absolutely. definitely is. Um, it, that was a moving moment at the end. That's good. And that's nice to hear because we want this to be an empathic um, but clear eyed look at the city at, and at the people that we focus on. I mean, that's mm -hmm. always been my guiding principle as a filmmaker is, is that I, I, I want it to be clear-eyed, I want it to be complicated because life's complicated and people are complicated, but I, I would I much rather err on the side of empathic, especially for people that you get to know in any meaningful way, right. than looking to just hold someone up as a symbol or an example of something. Speaking of the pandemic, 
First of all, how scared were you to go out? <laughs> first of all, to leave your home, yeah. to go out in the street. And there's a scene that is very unnerving to me in the pharmacy where the people are not wearing masks. Right. The man working behind the counter and his friend who's doing push-ups on the counter. Yeah. <laughs> Talking about how he's figuring out new ways to work out. Right. They're very charming, very friendly people, but this is a black-owned pharmacy in a black neighborhood. And it really strikes a chord in you when you realize, wow, the disparity among all of these neighborhoods in terms of how people were receiving the pandemic, the precautions they were taking or weren't taking. It really scared me to know that you were in that pharmacy. How did you feel? Well, I, you know, I mean, it's a good question. And, and um, my wife was always, uh, make sure you have your mask and wear gloves. Um, mm -hmm. We took as much a precaution as we could in the field in a situation like that. You can't, you can't take, if you're going to capture it, you can't take the level of precaution that you would in a very organized, more commercially oriented shoot, right? Where you have a, right. you, you have a COVID person on set and, of course. and testing all the time. So we, we, just, we just did our best to maintain distance, wear our masks, wear our gloves, sanitize ourselves and our gear consistently. And thankfully, we all uh, came through it without any incident. Um, but you're right. It, there, there's differing levels of compliance that you see in this, just like you see in America. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, that there's that scene where the people are opening up the streets and having restaurants in the streets. Uh, up on the north side, and there's a ton of people out there walking around without masks on. Right. You know, so so it 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 really didn't even break down racially at all. It breaks down to, I think, personal choices that people make, and some people are just more on top of it and care about it more and focused on it, and other people are kind of cavalier. And I'd like to talk about a few filmmaker structural issues in terms of how you assembled the the series. My first question is your decision to not use a narrator. Right. Uh, because it really does unfold very organically. It's almost like a wildlife documentary where it's, there's <laughs> no, where we're just seeing footage unfold and there is very little, there's a structure, but it's, there's no handholding on your part right. for us. So tell me about your decision to not have that sort of voice of God, as we call it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I'm glad you set, used that term, no handholding, because we definitely did not want to, we wanted to, we wanted to thrust the viewer in just like we were thrust in. Um, I'm a big believer that the film you make should in some ways be a shorter, although some people would say, really, Steve, you really believe shorter? <laughs> a, sh uh, a shorter distillation of the experience that you, that we had. Hmm. So that our naivete should be on display, our, what surprised us should surprise you. And so um, narrators have a tendency to iron out all the rough edges and, and put the viewer in, a, in too comfortable a position. And I'm not against narration. I mean, Hoop Dreams, most people don't remember this if they haven't seen the film in a long time, but Hoop Dreams has some narration. Yeah. The good thing is it's really forgettable because right. it's very practical and minimal and it's just designed to give you some basic information and get out of the way. Well, it's very non-intrusive too. Yeah. Right. And so, but in this film, we didn't feel a need for that. We felt like the media was our narrator in a sense. They, mm. they were the ones that provided us whatever needed context we needed to provide you as a viewer so that you were positioned to at least understand what was going on or what was that debate here. Mm. And, and so we, we leaned on the media to do that for us instead of a narrator. Mm. Well, it's very effective. And tell me a little bit about the music that we hear throughout the series. It's 
very beautiful. It's a lot of jazz. It's kind of experimental. Tell me what informed those choices and how you used local artists. Yeah, so I I had, you know, maybe one really good idea on this project, and that was... <laughs> just that I, one? <laughs> just one. And that was, well, besides maybe to go do this crazy thing. But, right. Um, which was, I, where I decided that I wanted to have only Chicago artists um, music in the film, and ideally not even any composed music by a Chicago artist, which I always work with. I, I always work with Chicago artists for my other films. But I wanted to see if we could get away with no composed score at all and just licensed music from this vast, historic, beautiful, amazing library of music that's been made here in the city. Mm. And we mostly did that. We, we, we had to bend the rule at the end of the film for the election day, and we got um, Reservoir, this really talented young jazz group and Will Miller, who is the leader of that group, to compose music for Election Day because we simply couldn't find something that would work. Hmm. Um, and so they composed something, but they tended to riff off of their own music, which was great. And so other than that, all the music in the film is licensed music, except for like Green Onions pops up because they're playing it at Willie's West Side office when we walk in. And I'm right. so amazing. It's like, well, of course, we got <laughs> that's another that. amazing scene. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so. We just, we had this incredible music supervisor named Don Medell, who's worked with us before, who gave us like 150 cues of music that spanned the ages of mm. Chicago music from, from the rich past to the present. And then, so that was a great thing to work from. And then Zach Piper, my producing partner, he is a walking dictionary of old Chicago soul and rhythm and blues. Mm. I mean, he he knows as much about that as anybody, and he contributed as well. So in episode two, there's a great soundbite from one of the individuals working on the campaign, and he says, politics is a blood sport in Chicago, and we love it. And it makes me think that they don't want to fix the system because they are so used to the chaos and they actually thrive on the chaos. So my question to you is, do you think anything will ever get better? And, and can Lori Lightfoot possibly penetrate all these decades of dysfunction? Well, I think one of the reasons she clearly got elected was because she was perceived, and I think rightfully, as an outsider to City Hall and to the Democratic machine, which controls Chicago politics. And she came in with a strong message that she wanted to end the corruption. And one of the first things she did as mayor was to strip um, the alderman of aldermanic privilege, which is talked about in the series. I won't try to explain it here, but but she she already took some steps in that direction. And I know that she wants to reform the petition process, which we dig into very deeply in the series, to make it less of a Byzantine and punitive um process for mm. candidates. And, um, and let me just ask one question. Yeah. For, for those who don't know, an alderman, is that sort of akin to a city council person? Yeah. The, okay. There's 50 wards in the city and there are 50 aldermen, one for each ward. And okay. they represent the city council. They they are the members of the city council. Okay. Because that is something that's very distinct about Chicago that we don't hear about in other cities. Yes, yes, okay. yes. So I think Lori has designs on on that, but you're right. That quote kind of says it all, which is there is this kind of perverse pride in how rough and tumble 
Chicago politics has always been. And, and I think that it's, it's both, uh, you know, clearly characterizes this city, but it's also a real problem for this mm -hmm. city. And, and so I think that change needs to come, but it's kind of tough when people take such enormous pride in the blood sport. Right. It's a very interesting psychology, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know, what did you learn about yourself making this series that has kind of come to you in ways that in other projects haven't, this kind of maybe a new sense of, of direction in this art form? Uh, that's a really good question. I, I, um, I mean, I think I learned something from every film and, 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 and so, you know, I certainly learned a, a ton about Chicago uh, in the course of making this. But I also learned, I think I learned about how much I love this city. I mean, I knew I loved it, but I think I really felt it and felt and, and how torn I am by the things that infuriate me and, and depress me about the cities, but the thing that, that, that also gives me great hope and amuses me <laughs> and, <laughs> and makes me love this city. So I, I think I learned all those things. I think as a filmmaker, this approach, yes, this film, this series looks like some of my past work in a lot of ways. There are, you know, verite driven scenes that, that are kind of foundational to the storytelling, but there was also uh, a, a looseness in how I approached what we went to film that I was talking about earlier, mm -hmm. the sort of serendipitous approach, which I found really exciting and a little bit of a high wire act that was ultimately exciting. And also, you know, there are many times over the years where when I engage with people, I do my very best to leave my questions out of the film. I, mm. we, we work extra hard to eliminate me as a voice. Right. We don't hear you film. very often. Mm -hmm. Yes. And in this series, you hear me more often than typically because part of what seemed to be what was so engaging about this process as a filmmaker was the conversation, Right. was engaging with people and them and hearing what I had to say that prompted them to say what they had to say. And, and that's something that I, um, you know, that fits my personality. I could never be Frederick Wiseman. Um, I make, I make films as long as Frederick Wiseman, but I can never be Frederick <laughs> Wiseman because I, I want so much to engage with people in the field, uh, and, and, and have a relationship with them. And even if it's just for, for an hour or a day. Hmm. And so I think this film has a kind of, I don't know, um, it, it has a kind of looseness and intimacy perhaps, that some of my other work um, doesn't have in quite the same way. Mm, that's great. And what do you hope people learn about Chicago from watching the series? Well, I hope they learn a lot. Uh, I hope they learn that um, Chicago is sort of, has been called the quintessential American city. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. That's not rhetoric. I think that what Chicago is grappling with, America is grappling with, and I think, you know, Chicago is the birthplace of community organizing. Mm. Uh, and, you know, even before George Floyd, you see represented in the series, the sort of passion and protest and engagement that goes on here that is now much more common around America than I think it's ever been. That's always been the case here. So I think Chicago has always kind of been ahead of the curve in that. 
um, in terms of how people engage with the political process and with change. Right. And, and then, you know, I, I, I want people to see the pride that people have in Chicago. I want people to not get a uh, Pollyanna unvarnished view of what we're up against, but I hope people come away from the series kind of, I don't know, in some ways marveling at the resilience and the passion and the hope that transcends all the problems that we have. <laughs> well, it's definitely a tough love approach you know, <laughs> to, to telling us about Chicago, but it, I love that it's not sort of this love letter. It really is sort of this warts and all, this is what we're up against and really just a microcosm for what we're dealing with all across the United States. So it's sort of if Chicago is the lab what do we learn from this to then apply to our own communities, which I think is very powerful. That's great. That's great to hear. And finally, and on a somewhat lighter note, when we are all able to travel safely again, what is the first thing you think someone should visit in Chicago and what should they eat most importantly? Well, uh, I mean, the, Chicago is a great restaurant town. Um, you know, there's this, there's this classic um, West Side restaurant called MacArthur's that's in the Austin neighborhood um, that is, you know, it's, it's a soul food place, cafeteria style that's been there forever. We actually filmed in it, but it just didn't make it into the, into the series. I mean, I think that's, that would be a good touchstone place to hit. Mm -hmm. um, uh, there's Manny's Deli, uh, which is on the near downtown, near South Side, um, South Loop area, uh, which is a classic old deli. And, and it's also a place where the, it's a politician's place. Mm. It's where every day, every, every election year, um, the day of election, it's a tradition for Chicago, whoever's running for office really in the state and certainly Chicago, they will go to Manny's and sit down and, you know, have a corned beef sandwich or whatever. And, <laughs> Um, so I think those, those would be two good places to go visit. I love that. And my mouth is watering right now, but make sure to eat your vegetables <laughs> before because you don't see a lot of veggies at these places. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, I want to thank you so much for joining us. And this, again, this show is such an amazing achievement, but also just something that I think we all really need to see right now because it does offer hope. And that's the most important thing. Thank you. And I really enjoyed talking to you. It's been a great conversation for me. Thank you so much. I'd like to thank Steve James for joining me today. For more information on City So Real, please visit citysoreal.film. I'm Stacey Wilson-Hunt, and this has been The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers, Stephanie Montgomery and Chris Alpert. Hosted by Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Written and produced by Dave Beesing, Ted Woods, Jason Jackson, Kevin Horton, and Stacey Wilson-Hunt. Associate Producer, Shanna Blackman. Production Coordinator, Juliana Parisi. And in association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.